And if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 4. We're going to be sitting in the first 12 verses of chapter 4 this morning. There is a well-known song. Some of you may have heard it. It's by Harry Chaplin, and it goes like this. And the cats in the cradles and the silver spoon, little boy blue and the man in the moon. When you're coming home, Dad, I don't know when, but we'll get together then, Dad. You know we'll have a good time then. You've heard it? And as the song progresses, we see this dad who is always working. He's, he has no time for his son. And at the end of the song, we hear these tragic words, this time from the dad's voice. I've long since retired. My son's moved away. I called him up just the other day. I said, I'd like to see you if you don't mind. He said, I'd love to, Dad, if I can find the time. You see, my new job's a hassle and the kids have the flu, but it's sure nice talking to you, Dad. It's been sure nice talking to you. And as he hangs up the phone, he says he realizes that his boy had grown up just like him. And this is where we may find ourselves if we do not heed the wisdom of Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Alone, and yet living most of our lives ever striving for something elusive, something like smoke, when the smoke that we've chased has blown beyond our grasp, the Father's last words is the song that we might be singing, and the results could be soul-crushing. But as much as Ecclesiastes warns us, it also points us another way, a way forward through the grim realities that come if we only seek personal gain to the beautiful possibilities when we don't give up our humanity to gain the world. So I want to start off this morning with a question for you as we enter into Ecclesiastes chapter 4. What do you cherish? What, if you had it, would make you think, I've made it? What would satisfy the deepest desire of your heart? Now, I want to read Jesus' words about personal gain and the soul as we enter in. Here's what he says. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? With Jesus' question ringing in our ears, let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the book of Ecclesiastes. Help us, God, to see what you call us to through it. To listen to your word, to have hearts that are receptive to it. And help us to change and to be shaped by you, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. So Ecclesiastes 4 begins like this. Again, I looked and saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressors, and they have no comforter. And I declared that the dead who had already died are happier than the living who are still alive. But better than both is the one who has never been born. Who has not seen the evil that is done under the sun. I want to pause for a second there. 
That is some strong language about oppression. The teacher really begins with bad news, and we really need to grapple with the bad news in order to understand what might be good about the good news. See, when it comes to oppression, our world is full of it. It is rampant, and it is very, very bad. So depraved is our world that he says the dead are better off. No, actually, those who haven't been born are better off not knowing the evil in this world. What he's saying is that the sinfulness of humanity is so prevalent that people are destroying each other for personal gain. And the writer of Ecclesiastes, he doesn't pretend, he lives in wealth, as we've read. He doesn't pretend sometimes like we do when we live in our society, very affluent, that most people are basically good. His eyes are open to what's going on around him, and it is bad. And there is nothing new under the sun. Afghanistan, Haiti, sex trafficking in the Himalayas where traffickers deceive parents with money in order to take their daughters who they never see again. Sex trafficking in Canada, drug dealing, and the highway of tears in our own backyard. It's not hard to find the oppression that is so pervasive in our world today if we open our eyes to what's going on around us. All around us, people are, as Ian Proven defines, oppression, pursuing profit without regard to the nature, needs, and rights of other people. People are out for gain, seeking to climb the ladder of success while kicking and trampling the heads of those beneath them to get what they want or think will satisfy them without regard for others. And the teacher sees this and echoes the cry of Job and many in our world when they are faced with the pain of oppression. I wish I were never born. And though we might not want to think about it or believe it, could it be that our hearts are just as susceptible to this desire for power and gain as anyone else? It's not just warlords and tyrants who intend to be, who intend to be oppressive. The dehumanizing of others comes out as we make life about furthering our own agendas. The quest for personal gain so often oppresses and alienates others. It prioritizes relationships not for the other, but for ourselves. I mean, how often do we ditch a commitment when a cooler opportunity comes along? And take advantage of someone's kindness with manipulation, no real interest or care for really who they are or really what they're doing, but simply what they can give me. See, whether you realize it or not, doing that is oppressive because we approach human relationships like a consumer with no regard for the nature, needs, and rights of others. For many in our culture, we also operate on what's called, what I would call quid pro quo love. So when a person agrees to give another person something in exchange for what they need or desire. And in our fallen world, quid pro quo love is love not for the sake of the other, but for our own selfish gain. And it can quickly result in dehumanizing others as merely people to serve our own needs. And that, in turn, can lead to oppression, a consuming and trampling on the souls of others and losing some of our humanity in the process. Have you ever struck up a conversation, uh, shown genuine interest in someone only to ask them to, really, to ask them to do something for you, and then you don't really talk to them much after? 
I have, and I've had that done to me. And however slight it might be, it makes you feel used. So what combats that? Some might ask, you know, aren't all relationship based on give and take? Like, you scratch my back and I'll scratch yours. Isn't everyone's goal somewhat centered on self-improvement and self-fulfillment? And the good news of Jesus cries out with a resounding, no. There is another way. A way more in line with our humanity and more in line with our Savior. And it's the way of the cross, of self-emptying love, a love that does not seek to see something and take it for ourselves, but to see and serve the other. A love that doesn't seek to consume, but to self-empty for the interests of others. Jesus showed this, that when he was with people who could never give him anything in return, he bent down during a supper and washed their feet, their savior, their teacher, serving them. And finally, and more completely, he showed it when he gave his life for them and for all who would come after on a cross. He gave his life for us while we were still sinners. We could give him nothing in return, nothing in exchange. That's the kind of love that drives out oppression and changes our hearts. And it's the kind of love that redefines how we view others. Not as people to serve us, but as people who we are called to love and serve, people who are image bearers of God, no matter their situation in life, no matter what they can give us. And so one of my questions for us today is this. Will will you invest in people who cannot give you anything in return? In that person you saw on the street who needed help and care, in that person you know of who maybe you don't have a lot in common and they're kind of hard to talk to, but they seem lonely. Is your life, and maybe more importantly, are your thoughts and motivations characterized more by gaining something for yourself or by seeking the interests of others? Next, Ecclesiastes turns our eyes to something, well, that might make us turn green, envy. And Jacob this week pointed out that as we begin to try to move from oppression to community, envy gets in the way. And envy is a great marketing tool. Uh, You see it on TV ads that are seeking to convince you that you need this product in your life. In the mall as you walk in, hey, this will make you beautiful. Or if you have this, you'll be better than the next guy. See, our world seems to run on envy. And Ecclesiastes reads this. And I saw that all toil and all achievement spring from one person's envy of another. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Ian Proven, he defines envy as the the thing that drives us on the mad rush for gain. It is the suspicion or realization that others are gaining more in life than we are, and that leads us to compete with them in the insane rat race, trying to outdo them. Striving to outdo them, he says. So envy is rooted, to a degree, in discontentment. From a lack of thankfulness in what you have, and a strong desire for, sometimes even a feeling of entitlement for, what you see others have. And ultimately, it's a discontent with God. And it leads to a striving to compete. It's selfishness, and it desires more, more, more. 
Philip Graham Riken observes, there are many things we are tempted to envy. For example, someone's looks or abilities or situation in life. Someone else has the job or the grades or the girlfriend that we always wanted. But of all the things that we are tempted to envy, usually our neighbor's possessions are near the top of the list. Just look at the 10th commandment. Most of the things it tells us not to covet are things that money can buy. We work hard to get more money, to buy more things, or else we pull out the plastic to engage in what one economist calls retail therapy. If we get everything we covet, someone else will envy us and the cycle will continue. The world is full of Joneses trying to keep up with other Joneses. As I prepared this message, I realized that Envy is one of those things that seems normal in our culture. Sometimes it drives people to do stuff and to become better. But I also realized when I thought about it that I have operated in envy far more than I care to admit. There have been times in my life, and they're not far off enough, when I have been working on a skill or wanting to grow in something, and then someone, usually someone not far ahead of me, or maybe even younger or newer than me, begins to excel beyond me. And it places me, in my heart and mind, in an unhealthy competition with others, even my friends. And when that happens, I'm no longer practicing or working f- towards something to get better, to grow in the skill, to honor God. I'm practicing to be better than the other guy. It skews motivation, and it ruins community. Consider for, as an example... You are playing tennis with a friend, and you have this friend that you play and you practice with. They're your tennis buddy. Now, if your goal is to get better, you would naturally think that sharing information and tips with each other will help you both succeed. But if your goal becomes to be better than the other person, you won't do that. Because your goal has, to be, has become to stay ahead of them. And now you both won't go as far. And likely, you will not have a thriving relationship. See, envy isn't good for community because it fosters competitive pride that stunts the growth of relationship as it tries to propel the self ahead. As Dave shared from C.S. Lewis last week, pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. And James, in James chapter 4, tells us of how destructive envy and selfish desire can be for a community. Here's what he says. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire but do not have, so you kill. You covet but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. We desire, but we do not have. And so instead of turning to God, we try in our sin to get what we want. Can you relate to the presence of envy and desires in your heart that lead you to alienate yourself from God and others? Proverbs reads this. A heart at peace gives life to the body, But envy rots the bones. Envy is not good for you. And Ian Proven notes that it is not good for your neighbor either. He says, the life of striving is anti-neighbor. The point of life, when viewed from envy's perspective, 
is to get ahead of one's neighbor rather than to participate in community with them. Now, if you're married, sometimes there are things that one of you wants to do that the other does not. And sometimes rather than helping and working those things out together, you kind of just go ahead and do it alone or let the other person do it alone, choosing instead really to look after your own interests. I know there have been a few times in my life where I have ignored my wife's desires for help in order to prioritize my own interests, like going to the gym or doing something outside or fun, leaving her interests really to the time remaining rather than prioritizing them over my own. It's never helped. And I've often regretted it. (laughs) But it's hard to believe that in our most important human relationship, we are often selfishly just unwilling to lay aside our interests for one another. Can you imagine where both, where you'd be if both of you were laying aside their interests for the sake of the other consistently? It'd be beautiful. And what about if you did that with teammates or employees? Why mere acquaintances might grow into real friends. So how do we send envy out the door of our hearts? Well, if we want to combat individualism in our community, we can start by, as Paul says in Philippians, having the attitude of Christ Jesus, whereby we do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Look out for one another. Serve one another. And with what do we serve one another? Well, 1 Peter 4 says, Each of you should use whatever gift you have received, so received from God, to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. So what God has given us, not for ourselves, it's to bless others. It's not for your own gain. And so we can lay waste to our envy as we use the gifts that God has given us for the sake of others rather than our own profit. Consider how you can take the gifts God has given you. What are those gifts? You can think of some of them. Some of those things you love. And use them to love and serve others rather than yourself. Now, if envy and the quest for gain and discontentment spur us on, when we come to the end of the road, we are very likely to relate to this next example Ecclesiastes gives us, starting in verse 7. Again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For who am I toiling, he asked. And why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless. A miserable business. I almost said business there. Like It's funny. Um, like the father in the song Cats in the Cradle, this busy man's work had alienated him from a relationship. Like he had nothing to show for it. It was gone like smoke. He'd become so busy that he hadn't really asked himself, like, what am I really working for? And this kind of striving for gain leaves people with unfulfilled longings. And this man all alone took note. 
Now, what does the writer of Ecclesiastes suggest we do? Well, earlier in verses 5 and 6, we read this. Fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. So there are two responses that are destructive and one that is helpful here. The first destructive response is not to work, to just fold your hands and not do anything. The result can be translated, eat your own flesh. You will destroy yourself. Fold your arms and think, in order not to be envious, I just won't do anything. That's an overreaction. The teacher gives us a second warning. Sometimes to make it, we might be tempted to just grab more things, to fill our plates, to work harder, to spend a longer time at work, away from family. But that leads us to burnout and really to destroy relationships around us. So what's the way forward? Well, he says, better one handful with tranquility. Work in one hand, tranquility in the other. A proper balance, one that allows us to invest in relationship and eat and drink and find satisfaction in our own toil, which is from the hand of God, Ecclesiastes says. In a beautiful poem, poet Wendell Berry writes this. I go among trees and sit still. All my stirring becomes quiet around me like circles on water. My tasks lie in their places where I left them, asleep like cattle. What does he mean? He's saying you don't have to watch over or dwell on the jobs you have to do. Like they're not going anywhere. Like Barry, you can let them lie there asleep like cattle. And as Barry sits and rests in the poem, something, a creature, a person, he doesn't say, comes to him and he hears its song. Like he stopped long enough to listen. And the poem ends, after days of labor, mute in my consternations, I hear my song at last and I sing it. As we sing, the day turns, the trees move. What he's saying there is as we sing, as he sat still and sang, when his striving ceased, others joined him in song. And as we see striving, as Dave spoke about last week, that resting leads us to relationship and community, to join others in song and life, singing in tune with God and responding together to the oppression, envy, and seeking after gain that is going on around us with and in the grace of Jesus Christ. As we rest in God's grace and in his gaze, our envy and discontent will encounter a wonder to be thankful for and to live for, something that will last. See, it is his grace that saves us, not our works. So we come into a relationship with God by his grace. His grace calls us then to participate in the work he has prepared for us to do in advance. Ephesians 2.10, for we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do, but to do them for him, not out of a drive for gain. As Jesus calls us to do good works, he also calls us to come and rest. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest, he says. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, 
and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He is saying that his yoke is easy, it is restful. You can rest in his grace when you come to Jesus and trust him as your Lord and Savior. The second thing to rest in is his gaze. To stop worrying about what other people think and how they look at you and view you. To stop the envy of your heart. Stop looking elsewhere. You want to work and do well, so how can you do it with the right motivation? By resting in Christ's gaze, by working to please God alone and not to earn a reputation or be seen as great in the eyes of others. And Jesus tells us that this is a rewarding way to live. And how is it rewarding? Here's what he says in Matthew 6. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Then your father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. See, when things are done for God, and in secret, envy and doing good for worldly gain lose their footholds on our hearts. When your eyes are off yourself and how great you want to be, they can rest on Christ. Maybe take a moment and ask yourself, like, whose opinion of you matters? And where do you turn for rest and refreshment? See, how, the, how you answer these questions will tell you something of what you love and worship, but what's most important to you. And when we rest in Christ, I believe, as Wendelberry's poem points out, we will find it possible to enter community with thankfulness, humility, a desire to listen rather than to compete, to give the grace that God has given you in Christ to others, to live out of humility rather than competitive pride. To have a heart that is open because God's grace has opened you up to a relationship with him and others, to hear the songs of others, and to sing with them a beautiful song in harmony with one another and God. Finally, Ecclesiastes tells us why community really is better for us than stepping on others to get ahead of them. Here's what we read. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Look at what partnership with one another brings you. You go further as you go together and strengthen one another in life and faith. Your marriage will grow stronger as you seek to look out first for the interest of your spouse. Imagine seeking to outdo one another and looking out for each other's interests. How beautiful would that be? Proven notes that though one might think uh, without the hindrance of another that the solitary traveler may get to the end of the journey faster and indeed he may gain riches along the way as he leaves the weak and the slow behind him and is not required to share what he finds. However, he will also know 
pits out of which he must dig himself, unrelentingly cold nights and lonely battles. And like the father in the Cats in the Cradle song and the lonely man in Ecclesiastes, it leads nowhere. Froben says, in community, our lives are strong and enduring, like the rope of three strands. The fool's individualistic life is, by contrast, weak and destined to be broken. See, in a world full of oppression and envy, the people who follow Christ, filled with his love, come together as lights in this world, a different community, not built on gain, but a community that loves and serves, one that is tuned to hear the cries of the oppressed and comfort them. A community of people ready to lay down the work of their hands and carry their brothers and sisters when they fall down, giving of themselves for the sake of others, sacrificing their worldly gain in love for others and ultimately for the glory of God and in bringing about his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. See, the wisdom of Ecclesiastes leads us right into the arms of Christ and the life that he says matters. It's a life of humility, not pride. A life of community, not in isolation. A life of balance, hard work and contentment, not envy and competition. A life that helps keep one another warm in the light of the gospel, as we preach and live out the implications of the good news of Jesus to one another, helping one another follow God's commandments, helping create a new gospel-shaped culture. And Ecclesiastes locates how we should live. At the end of Ecclesiastes, in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, he says, we are to fear God and follow his commandments, for this is the whole duty of mankind. And what does he command? Well, Jesus tells us, The most important one is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. And Jesus' question that we asked at the beginning of this sermon was, what good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Well, if you seek gain or even have been living your life with the functional idol of selfish gain or getting ahead of others as the driving force of your thinking and acting and willing. So functionally, you've been living like that. Maybe you wouldn't say you are, but functionally you are. Consider what Jesus asks and consider the gladness and community that you can have in Christ instead of striving after personal wealth, status, or even power. At the end of your life, even if you owned everything in the world, everything, Google, all the gas companies, everything, you still couldn't exchange it for your soul. The things that replaced God and led you away from others and made God small in your eyes and turned you in on yourself, as one pastor put it, have no currency in eternity. See, God has saved us not for greatness, gain, and consuming, but for relationship with himself and one another. Our hearts truly are, as Augustine said, restless until they rest in him. See, what it means to be human does not mean to gain the world, but to love him, God, with all your soul and to love your neighbor as yourself. And when we rightly come to him and rest in his grace, we also come to one another with and by that same grace. 
So may we lay down the restless pursuit of worldly gains to gain that which we cannot lose, a relationship with Christ and a home with one another, his children, in eternity. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for Ecclesiastes, Lord. and Help us to heed your words in Matthew 16. That we can't gain the whole world. Help us not to forfeit our soul in pursuing gain, but instead, Lord, to live for you. To, to love you with all our heart to love our neighbor as ourself, to care deeply about them, to step out of our doors, out of our houses and the castles we sometimes hole away in and love and serve our neighbors with the gifts that we've been given. We pray this in your name. Amen.